0: Amen, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good Good to see so many people here this morning. Uh, I see a couple guests all the way from Orlando, Florida. I guess. Um, My name is Marcus Donaldson. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church Gainesville. This is a place where everyone is welcome because no one is perfect. Also, we have Dylan and his wife. Isa. Hey. And Gracie Fallon in the back. Visiting, she's not really a guest. She's like distant family, kind of. Okay. I was looking for approval. I was throwing it out there. But um, so we're going to be continuing this morning in our series that we're calling uh, the greatest sermon of all time. Right, Matthew's sermon on, or Matthew's, Josh, Jesus's sermon on the mount, Matthew five through seven. That has historically been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Okay, and so far, we've made it through a few of the Beatitudes. We've been taking uh, them individually week after week. And so we've made it all the way to Matthew 5.8. Now, let's just read it really quick so I can help you understand uh, my struggle this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and say amen when you are at Matthew 5.8. I need you to say it loud or else I don't know. Amen. All right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now immediately, as as we read that, you may just realize that purity of heart covers Genesis to Revelation. It's in everything, and we'll cover that. But besides just the enormous scope of this this word or this concept, purity of heart, is the fact that I feel severely underqualified to preach any part of God's word, but especially this, without being hypocritical or something else. So, that's the struggle that I've been dealing with all week. So, um, that's where we're going. It's, we could have done it one of two ways. I could, have gave, or I could have given you something short and cheap and convenient and everything else, but I know that that's not what our people here at City Church want. Amen. And honestly, that's not what God would allow me to do. So even though my flesh was like, it's so big, I don't wanna go over their heads. and That's not what the Lord's gonna allow me to do. So we're going deep, all right? So let's pray quickly and then we'll get started. Father God in heaven, we pray that by your word that you would search us and know us, that you would reveal to us the impurities in our heart, that you would reveal to us if there's any deceitful way within us, any wickedness that dwells in the innermost part of us. Lord, we pray that that you would reveal us so that we can draw near to you for forgiveness and cleansing. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so at the beginning of our series, we we briefly touched on, we mentioned it and kind of covered it in some depth, but I'll, I'll touch on it again. We reminded ourselves that in and around the time that Jesus began his ministry, Israel the, the people of Israel, right? They were in a desperate situation, economically, politically, and religiously or spiritually, right? And politically for centuries, Israel had been under the oppression of uh, many foreign nations. But at this time, when, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mountain, the crowds are eavesdropping. They were specifically oppressed by the Roman Empire. I was going to say Roman government, but Roman Empire. Economically, they had to pay a ton of taxes to Rome, right? So they had limited freedom to build their economy, right? So, so politically, they're oppressed. Economically, they're oppressed. And the, the problem that not many people realize, not many Jews realize at the time that Jesus comes, he comes to the earth to begin his ministry and begins teaching is that for centuries, Israel had the problem of weak and uh, terrible faithlessness. They were constantly faithless. And it wasn't recognized, right? Like an iceberg. You know, you see the tip of the iceberg hanging out above the water so you can easily avoid it. But that mass that's under the water, that's the most dangerous part, the, the one that's not the most obvious lying below the surface is enough to sink, sink your ship, like the Titanic, right? Who hasn't seen that movie? Just, okay. But that's the problem, right? It's the stuff laying, or lying below the, the surface that we can't see. We can see the economic and political oppression when we read the word, but it's harder, and it was harder for people in and around Jesus's ministry to see the problem at the innermost part their faithlessness. So here's, here's what happened. It, Jewish leaders, their, their religion, right, it, it was, they thought it was all fine and all they needed was a Messiah to come who would change the politics, right? They would, uh, he would eradicate or overthrow the Roman oppression. He would come and, and fix the economy. But they thought their, their uh, religious problem wasn't a problem. They thought their religion was fine and dandy. They didn't need a Messiah to come and renew them. So, what they did, the Jewish leaders for centuries, is they interpreted the, the Law of Moses and they reinterpreted the Law of Moses. And then, because they couldn't keep the Law of Moses, they developed their own traditions. And because they couldn't keep their own traditions or the Law of Moses, what they did is they numbered a few. Right? If you can keep a few of these or several of these, then, then you'll be saved, you'll be righteous, you'll be pure in heart. And because of the people couldn't do that, what they did is they said, if you can just keep one, you can be righteous, you'll be pure. But the essence of the traditions were a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? And we should be somewhat familiar with this, even though we don't necessarily understand all of the traditions of the Jews, but... Do's and don'ts, we call that legalism today. Do's and don'ts, that was the essence of the traditions. Now I wanna show you this very quickly, Mark 7, one through 13. It covered every aspect of Jewish life. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews Do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to, there it is, the tradition of the elders. This isn't just hygiene purposes, like soap and water. Only you get it, Melissa, at the hospital. Well, maybe a few others, but we're not talking hygiene. We're talking you cannot eat unless you go through the ceremonial washing of your hands. You're eating with defiled hands if you don't, making you unclean and There you go. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, there it is again, that they observe, uh, such as washing of cups and pots and of uh, copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why do they not do the do's and don'ts? But... Eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Why did Isaiah pro- or well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as do- as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father or mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin or Corban or korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. Making void the word of God by your tradition. That you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, do you understand what's going on here? And it, like, so it, religion was crushing the people, and it had gotten so distorted that they that they were, the word of God wasn't. It didn't have the authority of the word of God. Now it did, right? It never lost that. But they started honoring and lifting up their traditions above the word of God. Now, we're so advanced that this doesn't happen today, does it? It does, right? That's, that's why we're laughing. But it became o- or obvious to the honest Jews that they couldn't do this. They couldn't follow all the laws and traditions and, and rituals and ceremonial washings and this and that. They couldn't do it. And as a result, they were frustrated. They, were, they had a constant... Um, constant anxiety, they were like oppressed. Now, tell me, if you see somebody who's frustrated, who uh, is anxious all the time, who's um, like, yeah, sorry, guilt, frustration, and anxiety. I was trying to remember those. If they're frustrated, they're feeling guilty, they're anxious, what does that tell you? What? They're worrying. worrying. Now, why are they worrying? And here's the answer. There are two kinds of religions in the world. Two kinds. I know you're like, no, there's not, Marcus, but maybe you'll understand here in a second. Two kinds of religion. And the first is the religion of human accomplishment. The religion of human accomplishment or the religion of human achievement. Now there are two kinds in in this religion the first is head religion head religion trust in creeds and uh creeds and knowledge and uh what you what you know about God for salvation and the other is hand religion which trusts in good deeds for salvation so there's head religion and then there's Hand religion. Both fall under the umbrella of the religion of human achievement. The second religion, which only includes, only includes biblical Christianity, is the religion of divine accomplishment, which simply says that God did everything in Christ, and all I have to do is receive it. Amen. That means that that I don't have to do anything, I don't have to know anything more for salvation other than that Jesus did it all. Now, you may be like, well, Marcus, I know some people who call themselves Christian, but they have to be this, this, or know this, or... Well, which of the two is it? That's it. Mike's got it. The religion of human achievement. That's not the religion of divine accomplishment. That's not biblical Christianity, period. So like the disciples and the eavesdropping crowds, continually, continually, we are being reminded that Christianity is not a religion of human accomplishment. It is a religion and only a religion of divine accomplishment. There is no other way around it. Being comes before doing, just like Jared said, repeatedly last week. Now, I want to show you just a few examples of this in Scripture, right, of this oppressive religious weight. Uh, throughout the Gospels, you'll see, I think it's Matthew 25, 23, lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, which is the greatest commandment of the law, right? If I can't follow all the others, which is the one that will, will make God love me? How, th- which one can I keep that will satisfy God, that will please him? Nicodemus, John 3, Jared talked about it last week. But notice there in that exchange that that Nicodemus doesn't ask Jesus any questions. He doesn't ask him a single question. He testifies. He says, we know that you're a good teacher, a rabbi, and that you come from God. We know this. But in uh, John 3, 1, and then again in 10, it says that Nicodemus is the teacher. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's been through all the ceremonies. He knows it. But deep in his heart... What happens is he he knows that none of that makes him right with God. He has no assurance in his salvation because of all the things that he's done. And he, more than anybody else in Scripture, well, save a few, in the New Testament, has done it all. He's been through all of the rituals. He's done all of the stuff. He's done it all. He's checked all the boxes. But he has no assurance in his salvation If he did not, if he was not feeling guilty, frustrated, and and lacking assurance, he wouldn't have come to Jesus at night. Jesus reads his mind. I know why you're here. You have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. You're trying to like you don't need to come flatter me. I know why you're here at night because of what's crushing you. You're trying to do it yourself, and you can't. And you're and you know it in your heart. That's why you came. So our good deeds do not make us. Our good deeds do not make us right with God. Can somebody say, thank you, Miss Captain? Thank you. But only what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Only that. Now, remember, being comes before doing. And in Ephesians 2:10, for we Christians are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them yes good works are the necessary consequence of salvation but they're not they're not before it you don't do it to earn salvation you do it because you've been saved by the lord okay so we're we're at this this fifth beatitude. Matthew 5a, go ahead and find your places there again. And so far in our, in our series, that's, that's where we've made it. Week after week after week. If you were here on Wednesday, you're starting to see what God does through his word. If you missed it, join us, not this Wednesday, but the following, and you'll see it. I don't wanna spoil it. You know, gotta give you some, a cliffhanger or something like that, you know? You gotta sell it, whatever. Um, but what we need to understand is that the people here in in the first century, in and around Jesus' ministry, they were concerned about doing in order to be. Jesus is telling us again and again, we need to be concerned with being before we can do. Okay? So what I, well, my promise to you is that April 24th, when when we're on our last beatitude, I'm going to connect all of them. I'm going to connect all of them and I'm going to... Help us see this in its fullness. But what we need to understand is that the first four are concerned with our inside, right? How we see ourselves before God. It's the, the transformative work that the Holy Spirit does in the heart and the mind of the believer, right? We have to be poor in spirit, and then everything flows from that gate. Now, this one, this fifth beatitude, being pure in heart, is the apex. Everything flows to it, and everything uh, flows from it, Okay? Thank you. (laughs) But in one statement, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Jesus rips the entire, like the the whole cloak of religiosity off off of the religious system. He rips it off, completely tears it off. Who's gonna see the kingdom of God? The pure in heart, them and them alone. Not you, everybody who's trying to do to be Only those who are will see the kingdom of God. So this beatitude, which is why we had to frame it with the historical context, it completely, completely contradicts or contrasts, it completely contrasts the religious system that the scribes and the Pharisees had forgotten long ago and then oppressed the people with their strict religious system of do's and don'ts. So, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through those words, blessed, pure, and we're gonna talk about some things in between. We're gonna look at heart and then we're gonna look at that last phrase, they shall see God. Sound good? Yeah, Twenty minutes. Seatbelt. <laughs> Alright, so blessed. That that word or blessed, you know, who's okay, show of hands. Who says blessed? Be honest. Praise God, I'm not alone. All right, so that word, we've been defining it for a few weeks, right? But it means happiness, joy, or contentedness that the world cannot give and therefore cannot take. It's a supreme joy. It is the condition of well being that is the consequence of salvation. It's the status of somebody who has right relation to God after having their heart made pure or internally transformed. That's why you're blessed. That's why you're supremely happy. Pure. I, I studied the Greek word all week and I still don't know how to pronounce it confidently. So just, I know you guys aren't super worried about it other than laughing at me. But <laughs> So the basic meaning of, of that word in the Greek, it means to make cure, uh, pure by cleansing from dirt, filth, and contamination. It's often used of refining metals, right? But it, it talks about being uh, refined until all impurities are removed and leaving only the purest metal, right? We understand that idea of um, purifying or refining gold, right? right? They want to in- extract, extract all of the impurities until you have solid gold in its purest form. That's the idea here. Now, in that sense, purity means unmixed, unalloyed, and unadulterated. It means pure, I know you don't define the word with the word, but it's all right. However, there are six kinds of purity, and this is where you might wanna take some notes because you may wanna look this up later, but there are six kinds of purity that we see in scripture, and I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on them, but I'm gonna mention them. Primal purity is the first. It exists only in God. It's the, the, This kind of purity, it's as, as essential to God as heat is to fire or wetness is to water. Primal purity He's the only one who has it. It belongs to him and him alone. And only he can possess or will ever possess it. But because he is the only one with primal purity, he can bestow all the other kinds of purity onto the rest of creation, okay? So then there's created purity, which is number two. It's the purity that existed in in God's creation before it was corrupted by the fall. We talked about this at our introduction, God created the angels and man in purity, amen? amen? Okay, and we know that some of the angels and, and man through Adam fell from that purity. Mm-hmm. So some of the angels and Adam, who was the, the first human representative, we fell from that purity because of his disobedience in the garden, his and Eve's. I know, equality. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All right, so then the third is positional purity. And it's the purity that we are given at the moment that we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, positional purity, we need to understand this. We are unpure, right, because we fell without him. The entire human race fell without him, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Positional purity says that this is where we were, This is where God takes us the moment that we believe in Jesus. We are positionally pure and eternally pure because of Jesus. No one can snatch us, the believer, out of his hand. And we hinted at this earlier. When someone trusts in Jesus' death and resurrection for uh, for the forgiveness of sin, God gives them Christ's Purity. He gives them Christ's purity. Here's yours, throw it away. Here's mine, take it, and it's yours. Imputed purity. He gives it to you, He credits it to you. So from that day, the Father sees us just as He sees the Son perfectly righteous and without blemish. Don't believe me, believe God's word. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from, from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ do that? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So that's positional purity, and like I unfortunately mentioned and went into, imputed purity, whereby God grants purity to the new, uh, to the new nature of the believer, right? We are a new creation, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. The new has come. So the believer's sin is not, not caused by the new nature which God made pure. It's caused by the flesh which is at war with the spirit according to Paul in Galatians 5.17. That doesn't mean that we have a hall pass to sin willingly. That doesn't mean we just get to live however we want. Because God made us pure. He made us a new creation. If you are a new creation, you have new desires. That doesn't mean that you will not fail. That doesn't mean that you won't be tempted. That means that it should not characterize your behavior all the time. You're not new in that sense. All right, so practical purity. This is where the believer participates with God in the pursuit of purity. This is where we cooperate with God in pursuing the uh, purity. And this is the kind of purity that Paul appeals to in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Peter reminds us that we are not saved just for... uh, uh, an eternal purity, but for an earthly and a practical purity. 1 Peter 1 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So if purity doesn't characterize your life, you need to ask yourself do you belong to the Lord? That does not mean that you will not fail. That does not mean that you will not sin or be tempted. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. Don't trust me. Trust the word. Ultimate purity is the sixth one. And then we'll get moving. So it's the perfected purity that all who truly belong to the Lord will experience when they are glorified in his presence. All sin will totally and permanently be washed away. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. F.F. Bullard wrote this, when I in righteousness at last, thy glorious face shall see, When all the weary night has passed and I awake to thee, to view the glories that abide, then and only then will I be satisfied. That's the Christian's desire for this ultimate purity. So unless the Lord returns or when the Lord returns or calls us home, whichever comes first, that's the end goal, this ultimate purity. That doesn't come from what we do. It comes from, because of what he accomplished on the cross. So, throughout church history, people, because you know, we're just so, we're way more advanced than these people that Jesus is talking to. They've suggested a few ways to become pure, to achieve this spiritual purity. And the first is monasticism. You become a monk. You flee from the world and you isolate yourself in this bubble of purity where you just pray and do, you know, nothing but just serve. That's it. You become pure that way, right? No. The second one is a second work of grace. Grace. Right at some point, God miraculously uh, moves or removes all of the, the the sin that is within you in this life, and you become perfectly sinless as you live. Your halo's bright, so it's hard to take pictures with you. You float on a cloud, so you don't need like a car or anything else. You don't need a self-driving Tesla because the second work of grace makes you perfect. No, says the Word. Neither Scripture nor experience, support either one of these. You show me somebody who's still alive today, who is sinless, and we'll just let them preach until they die. All right? So don't buy into the lie. But we need to understand that when God, when he commands something or demands something, that he provides Everything we need to accomplish that. So if he says like in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy, we can rest assured that he's provided us the resources to do that. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Let's not undermine that. That is the, the spirit of God that dwells inside of the believer's heart. We have his word, his living and breathing word. And then we have our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, and don't forget, we have Father, Son, and Spirit all watching over us, all sovereignly guiding us. So if he demands that we be holy as he is holy, we can be sure that he provides us the resources to do so. Now, where we fail, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But here's the problem. The people knew this. They knew that someday that God would come and change their heart. Look, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Or un, yeah, unclean, uncleanness, sorry. I don't know what's going on. Uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what God says and the people knew it. And here comes Jesus saying, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, you must have had one or two reactions. Like, oh, well, I already am pure in heart. I've done X, Y, and Z. But you're like, man, I need that. Well, that's weird, right? I said I wasn't gonna do it. Because to, to come to that end, you'd have to be poor in spirit. And you would have to mourn over your sin and sinful condition that got you into that position. The, the one that where you cannot achieve purity in your heart. And then you would have to fall meek before a holy God. And then, and then you, you would have to um, be, be hungry and thirsting for his righteousness. Something that you cannot get on your own. And then God in, in his mercy, when he pours that on, out onto you he, uh, in mercy, he, he satisfies your hunger and thirst. You become merciful. Then and only then do you become pure in heart. It's not before, it's not after. Everything leads to purity, it's the apex. Only Christ alone can make you pure. All right, so heart. Uh, It's translated cardia, and that's where we get words like cardiac and things like it. But throughout Scripture, we know and we understand, so I'll be short. Sure, that the heart is used to metaphor, metaphorically <laughs> express the deepest and innermost part of the person. right? But in Scripture, the heart is used to represent more than that. It's about the, the decisions, the thoughts, the will, and everything else. God has always been concerned about the heart of man. He's always been concerned about your heart. Genesis 6-5, I'll show you. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of, his, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What did he do? Flood the earth. He's always been concerned with the people's heart. When he looked on man and he saw, they had a problem. But according to Jesus, it's the inner man, the, the core of every one of us here today and around the world and who's ever existed that God requires purity, not the outside. It's not new. And, and I remember being asked this once, well, what if, what if um, I have a good heart? Here's what Jeremiah says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind and uh, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The bottom line is that God is concerned about our hearts. He's not concerned about what you do with your hands or what you know in your mind. So, evil deeds and evil period, it, it starts. In the heart. Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says this, but what comes out of the heart, or sorry, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. It comes from the heart. It starts here and then. So what I'm trying to understand is why we spend so much time time on moral reform. Why do we spend so much time worrying about the hands, the external, instead of worrying about what's in here? Why do we worry about all of this moral therapy and positivism and, and everything else instead of getting to the heart? Here's what one 19th century novelist wrote. I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like but I do know what the heart of a good man is like and it's terrible. So purity, when applied to the metaphorical usage of the heart, carries the idea of pure motive, of single-mindedness and undivided devotion, spiritual integrity and true righteousness. Now double-mindedness has always been one of the church's greatest plagues. We wanna serve the Lord and we wanna serve the the world as well. Impossible," says Jesus. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for he for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, uh, to the one and despise the other. Or as James four four puts it, "You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't serve two masters. You can't be a friend of the world and be a child of God. Yes, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Somebody say amen. Amen. The hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God, accurately expresses the proper Christian desire. The dearest idol I I have known Whatever idol that may be, help me tear it from its throne and only worship thee. But this is more than simply, or more than simply sincerity of motive, right? There's a lot of people that it's, it's all about what you mean to do, right? Well, I meant well by doing that, so God will accept it. No, says God's word. I'm sure that the pagan priests that opposed Elijah um, when they lacerated their dead bodies, or dead bodies, when they lacerated their bodies uh, to call down Baal to consume the sacrifice with fire in 1 Kings eighteen 28, um, I'm sure that they were sincere in that. I'm sure that they had the right motives in that. I'm sure that they wanted to appease Baal. Nevertheless, their sincerity didn't produce the desired results, And it didn't enable them to see the wrongness of their false religion. Because their sincere trust was in a false god, Baal. So their sincere devotion was sincerely wrong and therefore it was sincerely worthless before God. So even genuinely good deeds that do not come from a genuinely good heart are of no spiritual value. I'm sure the scribes and Pharisees thought sincerely, sincerely thought. I'm sure that they had the right motives for doing what they do. Nevertheless, it left them completely empty and unassured of their salvation, the thing that, that God promised them. So here, here's what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 25, and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, and, but in the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that uh, then, oh my goodness. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Sorry, I'm trying to go. If you're, if you're here, say Amen. All right, I'll get here too, hopefully sometime soon, or I'll just read the word of God. All right, and when we encounter passages like this, here's the problem. We, what we do, here's what I do. Let me just say, speak for myself. When I hear passages about purity and about God's concern for my heart, I, like the, the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, I start comparing myself to other people I start thinking about the worst too, not the best, right? The worst people, or the ones that I consider the worst, anyways. I don't use God's eyes, and 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 here's what we need to avoid doing today: is doing exactly what he did. Luke eighteen eleven. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus: God, I thank you that I'm not like other men—extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If that's you, and you're hearing Jesus' words, they're still true today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you hear that, and you compare yourself to somebody else, I do it too, but that doesn't justify you. Just because you're better than someone else doesn't mean you're right in God's eyes. All right, last phrase and and we'll go. They shall see God. That's the second part of this verse. And here's the way that it works in the Greek. It's, the the future indicative tense and it's the middle voice so what it it more literally reads like as one commentator wrote is that they shall be continuously seeing God the pure in heart shall be continuously seeing the glory of God in this life and we know from ultimate purity that we will see him in the next because we will be like him and uh, because we are like him he has made us like him so we will see the glory of God now I'm don't hear me wrong I don't see Jesus in the flesh when I wake up in the morning. I don't see him when I pray, but I see the glory of God when I, when I come here on Wednesday night and people are, are mourning together, when, when they're comforting one another, when they're praying together, when somebody comes and they're like, what must I do to be saved? I see the glory of God all around me. So don't, don't get it confused. But know that you, when, when you are pure in heart, the, the effects of sin that blinded you to the glory of God now is removed. You, you can see. And when he, when he heals you, when he makes you pure in heart and you can see, the glory of God is everywhere. Sometimes it's hard to see, but you can see it. Now, if you're not pure in heart, you won't see it, period. Period. we know ultimately that that we will see him face to face so here's the question and it's simple are you pure in heart are you pure in heart and the, the follow up question to that or I guess the way that we can start to answer that ourselves and I don't want to answer it for you but, but don't Think of anybody else. Just think about yourself. Compare yourself to God. He does not grade on a curve according to the worst person that we think is on earth. He is holding you to his standard, his perfectness, his holiness, his righteousness. That's the standard. Are you pure in heart? If it's yes, then how? Is it because you've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G? That's hand religion. That's religion of human accomplishment. Is it because you know X, Y, Z? You've read your Bible 20 times. You know who wrote every book. You know 18 verses. You, you, read your, you read it in a year. That's head religion. It's human accomplishment. That's not biblical Christianity. That's divine accomplishment. Only Jesus can make you pure in heart and when he does, you will see God continuously, the glory of God continuously in this life and ultimately in the next. Are you pure in heart?